brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, four videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. Almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there Beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested Every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know Unless you really do Where would we be without THC? We know the lying to us Just don't know to what degree Where would we be without THC? All right, higher side chatters, we have been digesting the esoteric toolbox of the nefarious cabal for some time, trying to unpack and understand the very blueprints of reality they have been mapping out and mastering behind the closed doors of initiatory orders for centuries. And the further we get, the more it seems that our construct is mostly a matrix of cycles, energies, and archetypes filtered down from some ethereal plane and playing themselves out like the universe's own original Netflix. And when you see the patterns play out, it's easier to keep from getting caught up in political infighting, avoid emotionally charged propaganda, and recognize the ways in which the power pyramid leans into these archetypes when it suits them and directs energy cycles right into their own little wind column. But it's not all about the oily appendages of the overlords or the Archon's influence. We can also use this knowledge to better understand our own path and reason for living. For when in doubt, consult the cosmic script. And there are many systems and maps to consult, from astrology and mythology to Kabbalah and the grimoires. But today, ladies and gentlemen, the offering on the higher side altar is the Tarot. Because today's guest, Robert Bonomo, knows it inside and out, and has recently released a great documentary explaining the fool's journey through the Major Arcana, clocking in at nearly three hours, called The 21 Faces of God, available for free on YouTube. He's also a blogger, novelist, and astrologer whose work can be found on his website, thecactusland.com, here to help us get a grip on the ones and zeros of the big machine, the tarot teacher and archetype preacher, Robert Maman, welcome to THC. Thanks a lot. Great to be on. Yeah, man. Thanks for being here. I really enjoyed the 21 Faces of God. You use a lot of clips from film and pop culture that I think really helped to make the connection between the characters of the tarot and how these same archetypes are still the major game in town. And I tried my best in the intro there, but 
How would you explain the tarot to people who maybe just think of it as a deck of colorful cards? Why is it more than just that? Yeah, I think the key element why it's different are the major arcana because it was a card game and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it originated as a card game that moved probably from Egypt, from the Mamluks into Europe. And in Renaissance Italy, they adapted the game by adding the major arcana. So these cards would trump the lower pips. Okay. And this set of archetypes were the, I think, probably most important archetypes in late medieval, early Renaissance Italy. And they were ordered. So there is an order to them. And I think that was really important. So they give us a glimpse, a really good glimpse of what the major archetypes are. And also they show us a path. I would say it's a deep esoteric message inside a game. (laughs) I like that. And the fact that it wasn't initially made for divination is kind of curious to me that it turned out to be so good for that because, of course, it got more refined over time. The major arcana was added later in Europe, like you said. Mm -hmm. But today, that's what we think of as its primary purpose. And I guess maybe it seems like whether it's chicken bones or runes or the stars, the code of reality's underbelly seems to just come out in any system that we put enough focus and attention on. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, divination, every culture in the world has a system of divination. But I think what happens is the more powerful the symbols or the archetypes in the system, the better it works. So, for example, you could throw feathers up in the air and say, well, I think it's going to rain. But if each feather has a meaning and not a meaning just that you gave it, but that was given to it thousands of years ago, it seems to work a little bit better, like the Zodiac. I mean, the Zodiac is just a big metaphor in the sky, but it does seem to work. Yeah, that's interesting. So you mentioned the Zodiac. Talk to us about the connection between the tarot and astrology, because this does seem to be the real nexus of one of your expertises, at least. Yeah. And to understand, I think, the tarot, to understand any esoteric system, eventually you're going to have to learn astrology because it is sort of the mother of all of these systems. Because, I mean, if you think about that basic hermetic concept of as above, so below, that's why the zodiac and astrology is so important to any esoteric system. That said, my belief is whoever created that first set of major arcana, I don't think they were saying, oh, well, there's an association between Aries here and Taurus there. And I don't think that's true. But, for example, in the film, occasionally I use those correspondences. Because they help. Because just like the zodiac is a path from the spring to the summer, the fall, finally death in the winter and the rebirth, the tarot follows something at least a little bit similar. So they can help us understand the meaning of the cards. But to say that this card means Aries, for example, or, you know, I think that's a big mistake. That's a big mistake. Archetypes never equal anything. Archetypes are like epiphanies. They just kind of hit you. And to say that they equal something or they are something, I don't think that's right. Mm. Yes, I like that. It's kind of like, of course, there's not a one-to-one correlation, but they maybe both represent some unspeakable archetype, some thing we don't necessarily have language for. Yeah, exactly. Like, for example, the chariot does have that kind of summary Cancerian quality to it, right? 
But you wouldn't associate the chariot with water either. You see what I mean? So it's definitely not a one-to-one kind of identification. But that idea that's kind of summer explodes in cancer and the cardinal sign of cancer, that can help you understand the chariot card. But I don't think that when people say, oh, well, it definitely means this and that. Eh. Like, you know, I gave a presentation this weekend in Berlin at the culture conference. And that was one of the things I talked about was these archetypes, if you look at it, and this would be my perspective, is more platonic. These are forms that have always existed and always will exist. And they appear again and again in our culture. So, for example, I use the example of the magician. You know, the magician, you could go back to Hermes and Toth and Egypt. And then you have the magician card. And then I use the example in the 20th century, Andy Warhol. For me, Andy Warhol is a true magician, an alchemist, complete. And he really represents that card. of. I mean, you can see that archetype in him, just taking a Brillo box and chuckling and selling it for God knows how many millions of dollars. You know, that's magic. That's real magic. Not bullshit. For people who, yeah, (laughs) for people who don't really know that much about him, I guess his shtick was to take ordinary objects and then elevate them to the level of art. Yeah, but you have to remember, he was a graphic artist. Now, I used to work in advertising, so, you know, I have a lot of respect for graphic artists, but I also know most graphic artists are starving to death. Andy Warhol was the best graphic artist in New York City. I mean, he became rich doing that. And then he moved into art. And so he understood advertising because advertising is true. That really is magic because you're using language to change people's thoughts, to change their actions, right? So he came from that world and he was one of the best at it. And then he went into art. So I think the more distance we get from him and we can see exactly what he was saying, what he was predicting about our society, I think he was a genius. Right on. Yeah, man. So you mentioned you used to work in marketing, advertising. I used to work in retail. Mm -hmm. You made them hungry and I fed them the slot. But hey, we are here now. (laughs) And uh, I did want to ask you, though, how does the esoteric context of these things that you've learned about, like archetypes, play out in the marketing world? I mean, they're using this stuff, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. What I did, I worked in direct marketing and I was actually pretty good at what I did in my niche financial services. So we sold financial education. And I never forget landing on a picture and it was a guy and a gal in a car and you saw the back of them in the open road. And that picture just worked really well. And whatever I said or did, it didn't matter. What people saw was that picture, you sold them kind of a dream. And you can say, okay, what's just the pretty girl in a nice car, but not really. It's movement, a path, all of this stuff, these are real archetypes. And when you can embed that in a message, so I'm not selling you a course. What I'm selling you is a road that's beautiful and open and free. You know, that kind of stuff, it's crucial in advertising. And one other thing I learned in advertising is keep it simple. My campaigns that I tried to get cute with, they all tanked. It was always a simple, very fundamental archetypical message and that's what resonates with people it resonates on a very kind of base level but it resonates right i just don't think people realize how much that does have an effect and yet it seems like that's its most practical application or maybe just because we are in such a money hungry capitalist society if it doesn't make money it ain't worth knowing about and so they found a way to incorporate it into that stuff and 
you know, knowing about it is great because then you fall victim to it less often. And, you know, let's just not forget the technology that's going on now. When I worked in this, say, 10 years ago, literally we were in the Stone Ages. Today, you know, using multivariate testing, right? I can take someone who's been on 15 of the same websites that you've been on, and I've tested thousands of people who've been on those 15 websites, which message works best, which colors work best, which combinations work best. I mean, direct marketing has become, it's not a shotgun anymore. I mean, it's a sniper scope. So people have to be really careful because they can really change through technology. They can make slight adjustments in your thoughts that can create a desire that a certain percentage of people will fulfill. So you have to be really careful. What they can do now is amazing. It's mind boggling and it's real. I mean, that's not woo woo stuff. This is you know, data, right? It's just data manipulation, big data. <laughs> of course. And so let's get into the history of the tarot a bit. Let's get back to that because I always find it mm -hmm. interesting just how long something like the tarot has actually been in existence. And like we said, it wasn't initially for divination, but how far back can we see the tarot going? And what are some of the major bullet points on its journey through time? Yeah, so you can go back to Egypt and the Mamelukes, no? The Mamelukes were actually, oh, they have a long history of being from Central Asia, and then they were mercenaries in Egypt, and they actually took over Egypt. So the game began there, at least the modern terror game, began there just as a gambling game. Moves into Italy. The key dates would be around maybe 1300. It moves into Italy. By about 1400 and change, emerge the major arcana, which it's what my film is about, which I think are the most interesting archetypes there. So that's another really important date, early 1400s. Then when we move into the 1700s, up until that point, it's basically a game and an extremely popular game. We know that because, for example, when it moves out of Italy and into France, it becomes very popular in Paris. And they know that by the card tax. So you had to pay a tax to buy cards. And you can go back and see that this game was extremely popular as a game. So in the 1700s, there are certain people who begin to write about it as an esoteric movement. And then in the 19th century, you get Elphus Levy. Elphus Levy, I think, really kind of gives it a prominent place in esoteric thinking. And then to get... To the early 19, 1909, you get the Rider weight deck, and then you have the Golden Dawn and all that stuff. But basically, as a tool of divination, you're looking about from the 1700s onward. Mm. Right on. And so I think people here who are listening, I think they like the esoteric episodes I do for the most part, but I'm sure there are some people thinking, God, another magic episode. I thought this was a conspiracy podcast. There are so many crazy things going on in the world, and you want to talk about playing cards? Mm -hmm. And I get that. I mean, for those people, what would you say is the value of tarot or astrology even for better understanding current events? How do they relate? Right. That's a great question. If you think about the archetypes that are used in every political event, and I show this in my section on the film on archetypes. Remember when I show Putin coming up the steps? Yes. And then Obama coming out. And then I use Randy Riefenstahl, the uh, Munich rallies. All of that paraphernalia of power, those are all archetypes, very powerful archetypes that they use 
to trigger in you that idea that that's the alpha male. This is the alpha male. He's the boss. And if you don't do what he says, he's going to beat the shit out of you and stay away from his women. <laughs> now, that is deeply ingrained in us, very deeply ingrained. And then, for example, the goddess of beauty. I use a Chanel ad in the film, though. But when you see her getting out of bed, wrapping that sheet around her, I mean, she's Venus. So if you don't understand these archetypes and how powerful they are, you don't understand the culture. Remember, it's not beating the game. You're never going to beat the game, but you got to understand it, own the game. If you really understand it, then you can read the newspaper and you can see what they're telling you and what they're trying to get you to do. That's the key to understanding all of these esoteric elements because they are these are the building blocks of our culture mm -hmm. and they're still as powerful as they always were. Yes. Well said. And what they're trying to get us to do, that is the crux of, you know, the bottom line of what I'm always trying to get at. And I do think that these archetypes help us quite a bit. And it really is what we said about marketing applied to politics. You know, they're using this stuff to manipulate us, whether it's to buy a product or buy a politician's bullshit. And, when we look at even halftime shows or award show ceremonies, it's kind of crazy when you mention the goddess. I mean, that is often what we see. Katy Perry coming out on a lion of fire <laughs> and embodying the goddess. And it's like there's clearly something going on here. This is drawing on some kind of ancient archetype, ancient energy. And I'm not sure if it's sometimes maybe subconscious or conscious, but I guess – to use that as an example, when we see a award show ceremony and it's got the twin pillars and it's got all these things invoking the elements and these symbols that we've seen before, what are they trying to get us to do? Just enchant us in a sense? Yeah, and they're using these archetypes to make you feel like you have a place in this system. I mean, think about the president. I mean, the president doesn't go to work in a Ford Taurus or something and get out and go into a normal-looking building and do his job. He's got to fly in a helicopter, have two Marines salute him, have all sorts of flags flying to identify him as the emperor, right? Mm. When you walk into a bank and you see those pillars, you're walking into a temple, a sacred place, and there's a sacred language. The thing is, when you walk into a bank, they're trying to instill in you this idea that you are in a sacred place with a very esoteric language that you'll never understand, but just absorb the beauty and that feeling of power. How many people can walk into a bank like you're walking into a 7-Eleven? It's a different feeling, right? Mm. They spend a ton of money on that, a lot of money, and it's for a good reason. Because imagine if you walked in and just started asking normal questions. <laughs> Right. I mean, that costume makes it seem official. They kind of make it look like a government building sometimes, even though it isn't. And it's just a, a sanctuary for money, the true global religion, right? Exactly. Money is a great place to start. I mean, when you go into church, you don't usually walk up to the priest and say, hey, what is this wafer thing that we're always eating? I mean, what's in it, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're terrified. Yeah, you can't. You can't. It goes against the liturgy. And the liturgy of a bank is you walk in to this enormous building with these always very high ceilings and sort of serious people dressed in suits and give us your money. Don't ask questions. Sign everything. 
Who understands what they're signing when they go to a bank? Who's ever read a full bank loan? No, seriously. I mean, what percent of people actually read the whole thing? Right. It's got to be low. It's an esoteric line. It's like alchemy. Banking is true alchemy. Like I used to sell courses for financial education. So you take these courses, you learn how to trade options. And what do you get? You get the philosopher's stone. That's what we were selling. We were selling the philosopher's stone. Mm. You sit on your computer at your pool, you play around with it for a couple hours a day and you're rich. <laughs> Anything you want, girls, swimming pools, you know, live the lifestyle. That's what we used to say, you know, live the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. We were selling people something very archetypical, that philosopher's stone. And remember, there's two philosopher's stones. There's one that turns lead into gold, and there's one that turns your soul from something very material to something more that functions on a higher level. Mm. Right. <laughs> it all plays out like a digital scrying mirror in that case, it seems. But sure. I, I guess you are right. I don't think about it that much, but a lot of that showmanship does facilitate a type of intimidation and you just aren't coming from a position of power. It's like being in front of the judge, even for something as simple as a traffic ticket. If you're sitting in traffic court and you see people processed up there, they're all blabbering. They can't, they're stumbling over their own words because they are just so low on that power totem pole because of the context of the judge sitting up high and the seriousness of the official you know, language they're using and all that stuff. I mean, it's huge. And that's crucial because that arcane language intimidates us. And it puts us in that situation of being in a religious setting. Mm -hmm. That's somebody with deep knowledge, tradition. He's carrying this tradition and we should listen to him. You know, I always tell people, if you have a friend that you want to kind of wake up a little bit, explain the whole money narrative. And you'll watch. They won't believe you because they'll tell you it's too simple. It can't be that easy. I've had so many people say, no, you're missing something. It can't be that simple. But when they see it, that's true magic. You know, people talk about magic. That is magic. Right. That you can take a whole society, enslave them. And even when they understand it, they're like, well, it must be okay. You know, no, really. They, if you yeah. just take it to the logical point, you would say, all right, why don't we just all stop? Imagine if everyone said enough, eliminate all debt. We're not servicing any debt. We're not paying any taxes until you eliminate all debt and get rid of this crazy system. And we go back to the constitution that says that the treasury makes money. We don't want any revolutions. We all believe in the constitution. And until then, we're not paying any taxes and we're not servicing any debt. Hmm. No, but think about it. How long will the system last? It would not last three months. I can tell you that. Because if everyone said, we're going cash for three months, we're not servicing any debt, we're not paying any taxes. The whole thing would collapse in three months. And we'd get what we wanted. Right. And that could be done on a nonpartisan basis. We could just say, look, we're not going to solve the world's problems. We're not going to create utopia. But this system, we're going to stop. Because this is a scam and it's enough. I mean, when I see these kids coming out of college now with degrees in gender studies, a hundred grand in the hole, you know, and they're like, oh, I'm seeing it. I mean, are you kidding me? And we let this happen to kids. Right. We do this to our children. I mean, it's disgraceful. And it just shows a total lack of will of just people with balls who say enough. We have all these guns. Why don't we fucking use them? 
You know, <laughs> say enough. Stop enslaving my children and stop enslaving the world. You know, and we could do it without killing anybody, without any violence, without any protests. We just said enough. Right. But we don't because we have no balls. <laughs> We're slaves. Most people like being slaves. Mm. They love it. They wake up, tell me what to do, tell me what to think. It is true. So we have no one to blame but ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's the whole ignorance is bliss thing. I've got friends that really do just want a simple job that they don't have to take home. So they'll do the nine to five. They don't want to think about it otherwise. They just want to watch the game on Sunday and go back to work on Monday and have enough money for the house. And that's kind of a sad reality, but this is the system that we are born into. Yeah. It's unfortunate. It is. It is. So going back to current events, a lot of people, of course, seem hyper-focused on Trump or they're worried about some caravan or they're frustrated with the constant Russia talk or these California fires. Are any of these examples of things that you see coming as the manifestation of archetypes or expressions of some type of predictable cycle? Oh, sure. Because, you know, archetypes begin in duality. I use this in the films. I mean, duality is the landscape, right? And consciousness is the light that shines on it. Everything appears in twos. So you've got to have a good guy and you've got to have a bad guy. You've got to have the caravan coming up you know, the fires here, the this, that, it all, and I'm not sure it's completely conscious. I'm not saying that there's somebody behind the curtain who's playing this all out because the archetypes are bigger than we are. There's nobody who can, can dominate these things. You know what I mean? It's like number. Mm. Nobody invented number. They were discovered and they just permeate our culture. You can't escape them. You can't manipulate number in our society, right? I mean, a number is a number. Three is three. These archetypes are there. Now you can use them to your benefit and they are definitely used. I mean, the whole idea of everything in the news is a narrative. The way we move through time are through archetypical narratives. I mean, the famous one, of course, is the hero's journey, but there are many, many different narrative arcs and these are all put into play. So when you read the news, what are you reading? You're reading somebody who's making up a story. There are a few events and they make up a story. And a great example of this is if anyone reads financial news, the NASDAQ yesterday tanked. Does anyone know why? No one knows why. They make up a story. They say, well, you know, oil prices did this and Apple did that. So that's why it tanked. That's how all of these narratives are created. People coming up with stories. But is there a truth to them? Of course not. They're stories. Mm. Right. And it is kind of hard to parse out to what degree they are manipulated or used. I mean, knowing the archetypes are there is just half the battle. And then it just seems like maybe they cast them out like paper ships on the ocean and some of them grow to become more potent and others kind of fizzle out because it's all about which ones catch the populace's energy. Right. But when you look at the news cycle, I mean, it's all this kind of stuff. It's just maybe they can't, exactly determine which ones are going to catch fire and which ones aren't. But if you cast enough out, you're going to control people and have them just emotionally moving from one hyperinflated story to another. Oh, my God. I mean, take the whole Russia thing. Is there anything to that story? That was a story that was invented and pushed and promoted, but there's nothing there. Mm. But if you ask, I would say probably 40% of Americans probably think 
that the FSB hacked into Hillary's emails and they said, Donald, you know, let's make a deal. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, does anyone really believe that the FSB is that stupid or that smart in the sense that they knew Hillary was going to lose? Mm-hmm. You, you know what I mean? It's ridiculous. The story has absolutely no foundation at all because are Russians that dumb? I don't think so. If they hacked into her email, and I have no idea if it was them or not, and they had emails on her, they probably think, well, the best chance is she's going to win this, so let's hold these cards. And then when she gets in, if she plays ball, fine. If she doesn't, we'll start tossing these things out. You know, They create this sort of evil that's there. It's, it's all invented. It's all narrative. Right, and there's also this insinuation that the manipulation of elections is somehow new, that – for as long as there's been elections, there haven't been people trying to game it in the shadows. I mean, it's kind of funny that a lot of the things going on in politics now, hindsight doesn't exist. They just think that everything is happening for the first time. Meanwhile, in my opinion, like all this kind of stuff that people are worried about now has been going on for as long as there's been empires, as long as there's been government. Oh, of course. And I mean, democracy is a joke. It's a complete joke. I mean, really, when you think about it, it really, and I know this seems like a cliche, but it's Coke or Pepsi. I mean, would there have been absolutely any difference between Trump or Hillary in our lives? For example, the whole scam of the banking system, the whole empire thing with soldiers all over the world and the violence and all this stuff, would any of that change? Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. And on top of it, with Trump, the newspapers are making a fortune. Newspaper business was horrendous. It was dying until Trump came along. That's why I you know I struggle. It's true. <laughs> when Trump says you guys are finally making some money. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, that part is true. But of course, there's absolutely no difference between these two people. None. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. I agree. And I do like when he says that just because it is such a twisting of the knife. It is such a great troll line. Oh. <laughs> just. <laughs> They hate him so much, but now they rely on him and they have him to thank for the attention that they now get and the advertising dollars they're able to make because of all the eyeballs that are back on conventional media. Yeah, I mean, go back to the summer of 2016. Imagine if Trump had lost in the primaries to, I don't know, who was somebody else that could have won? I don't know. Ted? Okay, perfect. Ted Cruz. Of course, Ted Cruz would have lost. I mean, who would have cared about Ted Cruz or Hillary Clinton? That election would have had been the most one of the most boring elections imaginable. It would have destroyed the New York Times and all. But now they're making a fortune. And of course, the Russia story was great. Do you remember every night Rachel Maddow? I remember once she showed a map of North Korea, and she showed the border with Russia, and she's like, "Look, there's a border with Russia, North Korea." Woo, woo, woo! I was, I, I mean, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> If people didn't throw out their TVs then, I mean. (laughs) They never will. Yeah. And you deserve what you get. (laughs) Yes. And so another analogy or kind of in that kind of archetypical way, I like to talk about the archons as a a bit of a metaphor. And I heard you on Aeon Byte talking about the demise of the current manifestation of the archons, pointing out that the Sheen is pretty much worn off of Facebook and Google and Amazon. People are sort of wising up to these platforms, but I like that idea. It's similar to that show American Gods or that, I guess, graphic novel American Gods, where pretty much any trend or place where people put their energy is a god form or an archon of sorts, and their strength and influence are related to how much attention they get. Is that sort of 
how you look at the world and things that pop up in pop culture? Yeah, that's a really good question. Because from the Gnostic point of view, the archons are what rule this world. And so if you're of this world and in this world, then what rules your world, you know, just watch a football game and all of those advertisers and all that paraphernalia and the Googles and the Facebooks and all these people. Absolutely. That's the mechanism of control. That's it. I was just reading today about Facebook. I mean, Facebook is in real trouble. We probably reached peak Facebook, <laughs> at least in the United States, by viewers and by time on site. I remember, I'm old enough to remember MySpace. MySpace, everyone was on MySpace. Who bought it? Fox bought it, and they just died. It just mm -hmm. died. In, it seemed like a matter of months. It was gone as an important force. No, uh, So, yeah, we are in a very, very strange moment in history. And that's why the whole Trump effect is kind of interesting, because I think when we look back on this period, Trump is going to be the one that started all this. I'm not saying that he started it, but he's going to be how we mark the end of an era. It's going to be Trump. There's a before Trump and an after Trump. And things are changing in a way that I think is beyond anybody's control. Mm. <laughs> Provocative. And all this just kind of makes me think about the elite and really just how the only move that will ever work for the people is to kind of decentralize power and carve up the empire into smaller pieces because the gods or the archons, these forces, they seem to be attracted to power and the bigger machine they have to work through, the more damage they can do. And that also applies to these digital behemoths like Facebook and Google. Obviously, it applies to humans, too. And it's not unlike the old phrase, absolute power corrupts absolutely. But mm -hmm. it gets more interesting when you also consider that influence is possibly coming through from the spiritual plane. Which influence? The negative influence. Well, generally, all, all the influences that act through these behemoths is almost like they're sock puppets on a stage. Like there's forces, maybe spiritual forces or an archonic force working through Facebook or working through Google, you know, that kind of thing. Well, you know, I look at it a little bit differently, maybe, that I don't see evil as an entity. I just see evil as an extreme. If we go on the material extreme, that's where you would get these forces. So it's that whole energy of the universe, but working on a very material plane. Now, you can transcend that and work on a spiritual plane, and then you can look at all that's going on in the material plane and kind of chuckle mm -hmm. because it has to happen. Right. You're not going to end that. And those, like, I just love when people start talking about the 5G network and the Internet of Things. This is the end. While they're talking on their 4G phone all day, the thing is glued to their ear, you know, mm -hmm. and they're chipped. You know, these are the same people talking about we're all going to get chipped. I'm like, pal. That phone knows more about you than a chip could ever dream of knowing about you. Mm. So we're not going to stop it. That's absurd. To think that we're somehow going to stop it, it's going to go. And it's going to go where it wants to go. The idea is to escape it, to get out of this world. That's why, for example, the fortune card. Bring it back to the tarot. Yeah. I look at the major arcana as a path. The first seven cards, say from the magician to the chariot, that's the material plane. 
But when you get to the psychic plane, the second seventh set of cards, you go from strength, right? Strength is controlling the ego, separating yourself from the body. You're something more than the body. The hermit is looking in, introspection. And then you get to the Wheel of Fortune. And the Wheel of Fortune is an interesting card because any of your listeners who do actually readings, when you get the Wheel of Fortune, that's always considered a pretty good card. Now, if you're doing a reading, that's the final card. But the Wheel of Fortune is a very dark medieval concept of fate. You know, the three fates, one who weaves the thread, one who measures, and one who cuts. And that's the cycle of life. So if you're completely embedded in this material world, you know, eventually that piece of thread is going to be cut. You're going to go up, you're going to go down, you're going to have your fun, and then it's all over. But there is something else. I'm convinced of it. I'm a Gnostic. Like in the film, I use that line from Young when they ask him, do you believe in God? He says, I don't know. It's hard to say. He says, I know. So I don't believe, right? Mm -hmm. That's where you want to be. And you can watch all of this circus and enjoy it because, you know, it's life. They're not evil. Trump's not evil. Hillary Clinton's not evil. They're just, you know, out there doing their thing. And, you know, they have a role to play. If you look at it that way, it's much healthier. <laughs> and you, No, really, and it won't eat at you. You won't feel like, oh, my God, these, you know, okay, let them play their games. But you need to live in a little bit on a different level. Right. Or we need to. I absolutely agree that kind of taking a higher view of things can be much more productive. But the flip side of that, to play devil's advocate, people would say, sure. well, that allows the negativity to continue. If you just kind of let the empire do what it does instead of trying to resist it. I mean, that only perpetuates it in a sense. It kind of, uh, you kind of become an apologist for the elite in a sense is the perspective I think some people would have if we are not calling them out on their crimes and not trying to at least give lip service to change. Obviously change is kind of outside of our means as individuals and on the grand scheme. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it just it feels a little weird to just accept a lot of that bullshit, you know? I know exactly what you mean. And you're right on a certain level. I just think that, for example, living a life that's sane, that's a little bit separated from that. And when you interact with it, you know, just put in your two cents. Every time I go to the bank, because I've worked in banking, so I understand banking. I always point out a few things. Today. Like today I went, I do something in the bank. And I said, you know, you guys, you guys are up to no good. One day people are going to wake up to that. And I remember the teller, she kind of looked at me. Sometimes I get angry, but she kind of looked at me, kind of smirked, you know, just kind of bring the message slowly because the beautiful thing is great. So many people are starting to understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. And when enough of us understand what's going on, it's like a stupid argument. You know, when you get in a stupid argument and, and you're just like, what are you talking about? The other person gets deflated. They need all of this crazy energy to keep going. Mm -hmm. If people just kind of back off a little bit, just like you said, the, the archons need that. They live off that energy. If we just back off a little bit, don't use the smartphones, get off of Facebook, stop paying for cable, start using more cash. If enough of us did that, that's all we need to do. You're right. And I think that is a great point. Rather than shaking our fists at the sky and 
claiming moral superiority, you can go about it differently, be like a subtle seeder of truth or an agent of change on the down low, rather than just being led around by the nose emotionally over the crimes of, say, the Clinton cabal. It is a kind of a position of power to give them less, you know, to feed yes. less energy into the beast. Like, for example, your show. You've got a show where you talk for two hours, you know, two people, relaxed, talking, no advertising, right? Mm -hmm. And this kind of conversation, this is human interaction. But, I mean, if you watch this crazy mainstream TV, what do they talk for, like 30 seconds? Yeah. <laughs> no, literally. What is it, like, the maximum they'll talk for is maybe, like, five minutes? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's full of advertising, and they're always trying to sell you something, you know, they're selling you something with the advertising, and then they're selling you an agenda with what they're saying. This kind of thing we're doing here, I think this sort of action, all of this together, we can definitely change. I would just tell people, focus on the money issue. When people understand the scam that is modern banking, and if just everyone went to the bank, just said, you know, I know what you guys are doing, and it's a scam, and one day there's going to be enough of us and we're going to end it. We're not going to hurt anybody. We're not going to do anything violent. But we're going to end this system and end this slavery. If you said that every time you went to the bank, and I try and do it. I really try and do it. I point it out. If we all do that and wake enough people up, one day there'll be enough of us. And it doesn't have to be 50% of us. 10 to 15. Remember, 80% of people just follow. So it's that 20% of us can wake up to a certain concrete things that we all can agree upon, right? I think you could take the very progressive left, the very far right. One thing we could all agree on is end the banking scam. So imagine we just said, all right, a lot of stuff we disagree on, but what can we agree on? Foreign wars, I think we've had enough of those. Income tax, I think we're kind of sick of that, which is paying for all these foreign wars, right? In the banking system. Let's just agree on those three things and let's make that change. And once we've made that change, all within a constitution, right? No revolutions, then we can start fighting about, you know, gender identities and he's and she's and whatever. You know? mm -hmm. There's a lot we can agree on. I agree. <laughs> and it's just funny because, in another sense, it's like your level of outrage or an individual's level of outrage doesn't really affect the actual actions and abuses of the empire. It just makes you feel morally superior. And it doesn't really do anything but pat yourself on the back as, oh, I hate what they're doing. Well, they're still doing it. You know, it doesn't really matter. You can maybe graduate from that type of thinking and do something more creative or be a more subtle agent for the good, like by doing the kind of things that you're talking about. It's a lot more productive than standing on the street corner with a protest sign, for example. Oh, it's virtue signal. <laughs> Absolutely. Most of what you hear in the conspiracy world, and most of it's just bullshit and virtue signaling. You know, I mean, it's, mm -hmm. I remember a couple of years ago, I created this manifesto to just stop. We'd pick a date, say three months from now, and we'd have a meme, an internet meme. And on this date, everyone is going to stop. We're going to stop using the banking system. We're going to take out our cash, pay off the electric bill and whatever for three months. We're just going to do everything with cash, just cash. And we're going to stop paying taxes and stop servicing debt. Nobody responded. 
Santos Bonacci responded, the only guy. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, he may be out there, but the guy's got a solid pair. That much? I think. <laughs> I'll so yes. what I mean is, how many people really want to do something? I don't think many people want to do anything. Because I'm mm. tired of hearing, oh, about this and about that. There are things we can do. There are things we can do and that we can all agree upon. But nobody wants to do it. It's much more fun to sit about and moan about it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's time for action. It really is time for action on a certain level. We can create a more just society. We're not going to create utopia. But we can create a more just society if we just act. And I think the time has come to act. Mm. Amen. And so I've also heard you say that in these times, we desperately need a new myth. Can you elaborate yeah. on that? And what do you think a productive new myth might look like? Oh, my God. We are so desperate for a new myth. You know, I was in this culture conference in Berlin this weekend. It was fascinating. Berlin is just an amazing city. It's got a great vibe. And all of these young people came to hear speakers, you know, on the tarot, on magic, on all sorts of stuff. They were so hungry. I mean, we need a new myth because the old myths are dead. The Christian myth, unfortunately, has stopped functioning. In Western society, that was the major spiritual myth. It stopped working. So we need a new myth. And that's one of the reasons I made this film, because the tarot goes back to something very deep in our past. And when I mean deep in our past, I'm not talking about, you know, oh, it's from Egypt or something. No, these are archetypical ways to awaken to our spiritual self. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced of this. I mean, I can't prove it, but I think if you watch my film, you'll see that not only are these powerful archetypes, but there is a way. And I'm not saying it's only in the tarot. Of course, there's many ways. That's why I think Buddhism has become so popular. Even yoga. You know, I mean, a lot of people bash yoga, but the wonderful thing that yoga, I think, has brought to our the West is that people at least begin to meditate, you know, to quiet their mind and see that there is something else there. So, yeah, we need a new myth. We definitely need a new myth. And that's a really interesting topic when you look at that period, I think, between 19, the mid-90s and the early 2000s, something happened culturally. You could see it in films. No, films like The Matrix and Fight Club, The Truman Show, all these types of films. And then, of course, you have 9-11. And something weird happened there. And I see a new myth emerging. Exactly what it is, I don't know. Because remember... You don't make myths. Myths are always there. They're like archetypes. They just kind of emerge again. It's like a beautiful woman who goes and changes clothes. She comes back. You know, you never know what she's going to be wearing. Mm. And that's a little bit what a myth is like. So we don't know exactly what it is, but I do see something emerging now. But that's why there's so much confusion. Because myths give meaning. Science is great, but it's meaningless. And we've been in this void now for, I would say, a pretty long time, maybe a couple hundred years. Mm. Yeah, you know, it all makes me think of an old Alan Watts lecture that I used to like a lot where he says, if the game isn't worth the candle, just kill yourself. Meaning, like, if you aren't doing anything productive or you're unhappy living a life stuck in some shit job or you're just not on the right path. I mean, why drag it all out? Why even feel compelled to go on? And of course, the underlying meaning of what he's really saying is make the game worth the candle, make your life worth living and adopting a 
proper worldview or hanging your hat on a better myth per se is actually a big part of your mental health and life direction. And you probably should put some attention into what you want to fill that space in your head. Yeah. And it's the problem is that people in our society, we want everything kind of easy and we want it quick. And this path is not easy. And well, I mean, maybe for some people, I'm not saying that there are not some savants out there, but in general, you know, it's something that takes a long time to decompress. I mean, I used to be in the advertising world. You know, I lived in Manhattan. It's making good money. My brain to get out of that, literally just to get out of that mindset took me a couple of years. It wasn't easy. So, you know, it's a long path. And remember, if we go back to the tarot, you know, the tower card, that's the spiritual level, that last, those last seven cards. The devil's there to protect that path. Whatever the ego is still really stuck to, the devil's going to point it out. He's going to pull on those hooks. And then you get to the tower card where it all collapses, the dark night of the soul. Everything you believed is wrong. Mm -hmm. You have to kind of lose your attachments. Yeah, and things have to die. I mean, think about that sequence of cards. I mean, it's a beautiful sequence from the hanged man when you begin to see things a new way. You see it upside down. Remember the hanged man? He's upside down, mm -hmm. but he has that glow. That's that red pill moment like, oh, wow. No? And then your old self dies. And then you need temperance because you are in a really delicate state there. Temperance is that idea of staying grounded. In the film, I use that moment when Mara tempts Buddha with the women and everything. And what does Buddha do? He touches the ground. That's the temperance card. It's the same exact concept. You know, by what right or by what authority do you claim you're enlightened? And Buddha, what does he do? He touches ground. You got to stay grounded. Then you meet the devil. There's always something left. You know, there's always one girly out there we can't forget, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then you go to the towers where it all just collapses. And then you start to be born again. The star, the luminaries, you know, the star, the moon, and finally the sun. So the cards can really help you. Now, I'm not saying that it's some kind of religion or that it's the only way. Of course not. There are many paths out there. But for Western people, these are Western archetypes. And one thing I just, you know, a lot of people, you know, the tarot can be anything you want. You know, make your own tarot. Hmm. You know, it's like if you want to learn music, learn to play it correctly, learn to play it well, then you can begin to improvise or cooking. You know, if you want to cook something well, you got to do it two or three times. And then once you know how to do it, then you can begin to play around. But first, you know, these are real archetypes and they do mean something. So learn the traditional part. Then you can go off on the new stuff. Well said. And. Let me ask you this, too. I didn't expect to, but on the subject of astrology, I've gotten more into paying attention to astrology on a weekly, monthly basis and seeing where the planets are in the big cycles, as well as having a few readings of my own chart done. And obviously, you get some insight into yourself through doing that. Sure. But I'm having a hard time merging the two. When I'm reading what the planets are doing, a lot of times they'll write about the effects that it's going to have on the wider culture for everyone. But there's also a, a, a micro scale of how it affects you individually based on 
your own chart. And those kind of things I'm having a hard time rectifying. I mean, how do we how do we do that? How do we if we know our own chart well and we're looking at what's going to happen next month, how do we interpret that correctly through the lens of our own astrology? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So here's what I would do. Focus on your own chart. And remember, the house is extremely important. So it's not just the sign. It's the sign and it's the house. So look at the aspects to that house and where the planet is, the aspects to that planet, and the rulership of that house. Are you familiar with the rulerships? Yeah, a little bit, but just for people who aren't. Yeah, like for example, let's just take an example. Imagine you're an Aries, okay? I am. (laughs) Okay, great. Yeah, you're an Aries. So your son is in Aries, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. What house is that in? Uh... Is it the ninth? Okay, perfect, perfect. So the great thing about having the sun in Aries, right, is the sun is exalted in Aries. So it's a really good placement. It gives you a lot of power there. Mm -hmm. So you always want to look at the planet that rules that sign and that house placement. Look where that planet is and what kind of aspects it's making. You know, the angles to it. Mm Mm-hmm. So you want to get a feel for what's going on in that house. That's the way I do it. So I take a house. Let's take the ninth house, right? So right now, what planets are in Aries right now? I don't pay a lot of attention to Aries because I don't have anything going on in Aries. But whatever. But if you take the ninth house, which is a house related to philosophy, learning, travel. If you have a planet that's moving into the ninth house, moving into Aries, It's going to affect those areas of your life. And just remember, the sun rules Aries. So whatever aspect, so the sun's in Scorpio, right? That aspect between Scorpio and Aries, you want to kind of look at that angle too. That plays a role. You know, astrology is difficult. Like, for example, when I do a chart, it takes me at least three days. If I do a reading, someone will give me their info. I come up with the chart. I have a system of numbering and and scoring that I do. Then I look at it again the second day. And then the third day, I look at the aspects. So it takes me about three days to get a real feel for the chart. And then I do the reading. That's why I say the tarot is much simpler. It took me years before I could make a birth chart kind of saying. You know, it took a long time. But with tarot, I was able to do tarot readings within a year where I thought, well, you know, I mean, I wasn't a great tarot reader in a year, but I could get a reasonable feel for it. Mm -hmm. So that's why I would really tell folks, focus on the tarot. It's a great way to kind of get into this world. So hold on. I just pulled up what's going on in Aries right now. Oh, exactly. You've got Uranus popped back into Aries, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got Uranus in Aries now. And casually, the moon's there, but the moon's there just for a couple of days. But that idea of having Uranus and Aries going back into your ninth house, that's kind of interesting for you because on the big level, right, all people who are Aries sons have Uranus and Aries, right? So it's affecting a whole generation of people, no? Mm-hmm. But for you specifically, it's in that area of learning. So there might be something that you were trying to learn or something that you were trying to get a grasp of that you almost got, and now you're sort of revisiting it, or you're getting a second taste, that would be a way to look at Aries, a little bit of 
what's going on. Were you in the ninth house? Hmm. That's why it's important when you're looking at your chart, really focus on the house. Right on. Interesting. So yeah, I mean, of course, tarot and astrology would fit that bill of something that I'm redigesting as we speak, literally. Uh, yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Um, and yes, you mentioned the moon as I was looking at this uh, astrological calendar I have. That is what it is, is it's mapping the moon going through each sign because it does change every couple of days. And is there what the aspects of the moon is it's the inner uh, self, right? Is that correct? Yeah. When I look at the moon in a birth chart, it's a little bit where the heart is. So when you look at the sun as kind of the spirit. The moon is a little bit the psyche and the ascendant as the body. Again, we go back to the threes. Yeah. But when you look at a chart, when you find the moon, like, for example, I have a friend of mine. She's got the moon in Scorpio and in the fifth house. And those astrologers out there know, you know, that's an interesting placement. <laughs> so what I mean is the moon is a little bit where your heart's going to be. Okay. It's a little bit where your passion's going to be. It's important because if you're doing something you hate, when people come to me and they say, God, I hate my job or something, I have to look at their moon placement. It gives me an idea. But you know, the one thing, if I could just give people one piece of information about astrology that has always worked for me, if I can only look at one thing on a chart, you know what I would look at? Hmm. The nodes, the north node, the node of the moon. Where the node is, that is your life path. Like, for example, do you have your chart up? I do, actually. <laughs> Where is your node? It's that little, it's like a horseshoe. Uh, the north node is in the 10th house. Ah, interesting. And in what sign? Taurus, right? Yes, Taurus. That's the Taurus sign. Now, this is really interesting for you. The 10th house, this is the life direction, okay? So the nodes were the head of the dragon and the tail of the dragon. So for someone like you, your connection to family, you have a tendency to go to the home life, the family life, your origins. That's sort of like where you're pulled to, but your destiny is the public life, the 10th house. You need to be out there. Hmm. So you've got to be careful. If you have a choice, between the home, the family, your roots, your origins, or the public life, there's going to be a part of you that wants to go to the easy place, which is home. Push yourself out there. You belong out in the world. The 10th house is your public self. Mm. And that's why what you're doing now, that's why it's working, because that's what you should be doing. If you were like busting your nut on some job that you hated – supporting the family, you'd be absolutely miserable. Yes. <laughs> but being out there in public, that's where you're going to thrive. And if you thrive, you'll figure out a way to pay the bills. Hmm. See, that's so fascinating, man, because anyone who's listened to the show knows that part of what I struggle with now is balancing this emergence as a public figure through the podcast versus my tendency to hermit up and not post on social media, not engage with the digital stage in which I'm on. And uh, whenever I am faced with some kind of, I don't even want to say criticism because I can take that, but some type of creepy behavior, I have a tendency to just shut down all 
that kind of communication with the public and reestablish a barrier and just kind of sit around the house. And balancing that out, that duality is definitely at the forefront of my mind. So to pick up specifically on that, I think anyone who's listened to like my wrap ups in the show, you know, that's already on the public record and you basically just highlighted it right there. So I think that's an interesting example. <laughs> yeah. And I would highly recommend folks, even if you don't know much about astrology, just go to astro.com, pop in your info, use whole signs. It's just much easier. I mean, later on you can change, but if you're not an expert, it just makes it simpler. And just look where your north node is. The house placement is crucial. And of course here, the sign is kind of generational, no? Mm -hmm. Everyone born a couple years around you has a north node in Taurus, right? But the house placement is specific to you. So really look at the house placement. And that can help you so much. It's amazing how many people come in for readings. And I focus so much on the north node. It really helps them. Because it shows that dynamic in your life. And which way you want to go is usually to the south node, but the way you should go. You know those things in life you don't want to do, you, but you push yourself and you're like, damn, I'm glad I pushed myself. Right. That's a north node. And it can really help you. Wow. That's insightful, man. I, I really do like that. I hope a lot of people do take that one simple step and also find that kind of insight that applies to them personally. So I appreciate that. And man, it's going to be that time, but this has been a lot of fun. I, I really did, again, liked the uh, 21 Faces of God. I think everyone should give it a watch. I also liked several of the articles on your site that I have checked out. But do remind them of the work you'd like them to check out and anything else you're going to be working on in the future. So the main thing now is the 21 Faces of God. In long form, it's two hours and 40 minutes. You can watch it in long form. And I broke it up into 27 parts. And we have subtitles in Spanish, Russian, and Chinese. So if you've got any friends you know, who don't speak English but speak one of those languages, I've got the subtitles in. And they're not just Google subtitles. They're actually curated subtitles. It's been a big project. So you just go to YouTube. Just pop in the 21 Faces of God. You'll see the channel. So you can see the serialized version or the long-form version. My website's The Cactus Land. You know, there's some articles on that. And I have three novels. Twilight Breakout's more literary. Cactus Land is, I think, kind of my most interesting novel. It's a dystopian novel. I like that novel. I think it holds up. And then my latest novel was more esoteric, which also follows the narrative arc of the tarot. It's a Your Love Incomplete. So I've got three novels. They're free on Smashwords. So it's all free. Nothing for sale. It's all out there for you guys. Wow. Very cool. Robert, you're the man. Clearly, you know a lot about this stuff, and I appreciate you dishing it out for us. Keep doing what you do and take care out there. Thanks a lot, Greg. Really appreciate it, man. You got it. Sweet Lady Sabrina, folks. Robert Bonomo, the 21 faces of the big G.O.D., archetypes, archons, tarot, the money spell, and those lion banksters. I gotta say, I did enjoy this one a lot. I think Archetypes do deserve a conversation now and again, especially when we can relate them to what's currently going on in the world. I know I had said this in the last wrap-up that we were going to segue back into some practical, down-to-earth conspiracy stuff, and this episode, I think, was a good bridge to get us there, because we talked about both sides of the coin. And it tied in to a lot of things that the more esoterically-focused guests have been saying lately. 
And because the production line of THC episodes is kind of long, oftentimes the things I'm talking about will take a couple episodes to manifest because there are things on that conveyor belt that have yet to come out. It's all that editing, all that editing that other shows won't do. Taking up your sweet time. But hey, I'm looking at December, and while the next show is actually about current events as rituals, which I think is really our sweet spot, one of my favorite topics, I'm also looking at at least three shows where magic probably won't come up at all. It'd be weird if it did. And I think fairies, even less so. But I like drifting back and forth. And lately, trying to stay out of the political. But to really understand archetypes on a deep level, like I wish I did, even just a cursory understanding makes current events seem a lot less potent or more like the world is the stage. And I do think that helps us keep our footing when the machine is so effective at tripping us up. It's got so much data to analyze. It knows how the mind works. We need to keep a lot of the stuff Robert brought up in our mental Rolodex of references. I also just thought he was an easy guy to listen to. My editor thought he sounded like Richard Dreyfus, and I couldn't put my finger on it for a while, but I think I got it. I believe he sounds like Walter Bosley, but recognizable. I don't know. He's got one of those voices and pretty knowledgeable across the board, too. I was happy to take a couple of pokes at the financial system, talk archons a bit, and I also liked his description of the devil. It's not unlike things we've heard before, but it's a good reminder that even the villain has a role to play, or really just the function of fucking with you and pulling on your attachments. It's why every superhero says, look, woman, I love you, but you gotta get the hell out of here, because where I'm going... They're going to put you through hell just because I love you and I'm pretty much a bulletproof tiger. And it's not to make a moral decree about attachments or say they're bad or anything. It's just a component of the play, a plot device. And it calls into question what is true freedom and independence. From a certain perspective, raw freedom and independence is too heavy of a burden to bear for a lot of people. Never mind the fact that I just successfully rambled my way through a monologue built around going from lion to tiger to bear, the point still stands, and I have all types of attachments and weaknesses, if you will. Strings for which the devil to play me. I am a stoner, hippie, housecat hypocrite for the most part, but I appreciate a good warrior and what it takes to walk that path. And I also liked his astrological analysis there at the end. That was pretty spot on. I really do see myself in my birth chart quite a bit. Maybe other people don't really feel the same way about theirs. I don't know. But I've talked vaguely about a rough summer, largely in regards to a semi-public life and just marinating in conspiracy waters like we do. And my tendency and choice to sort of recoil and hermit up So when you hear something from your birth chart that actually is a reflection of a recent mental tug of war, it just makes, I don't know, makes me feel a lot lighter about such things as if to think, oh, well, this is part of the story. No big deal. And like he said, it probably will be a recurring theme for me. Also, good thing for me to have in mind. And you heard him. I should choose you over my own family, right? (laughs) That's what I heard. I'm half kidding. But we will see if 2019 is a year in which I push through resistance or if I retreat to my stoner haven. And I really 
don't like to focus on me as anything more than a question asker. It's kind of embarrassing. But when we're talking astrology, it just works. It makes me an example that we all have in common. Because if you've been listening for years, you probably know a bit about me. And you can judge for yourself if these statements from the star map interpretations actually resonate with your impression. And maybe it'll jumpstart an interest in diving deeper into your own stuff. But that's what I got for you, people. Another THC in the can. I hope you had a good time with it. If you only heard the first hour, please consider signing up for THC+. You get twice as much show, twice as much insight, twice as much weird goodness. And I really try to stay focused on solid material for you guys. We get through a lot in an hour here, and I take my job pretty seriously. I want it to be worth it. And in this episode, with the extra hour, we spent it talking about the art of number, the importance of initiation, getting off your own personal moisture farm, the mechanics behind tarot divination, and Robert explained some key cards of the Major Arcana. We talk Popeye, we talk Walter White, and what we're all trying to do, overcoming the seven pillars of the Matrix. So diverse as always, if you want or want to give plus as a gift for the holidays, it's easy to do. Just make a username catered to that person, sign up, and email them the login info. And tell them how long they have. Nothing too advanced. Pretty simple stuff. I also got three new Higher Side Chats t-shirts in the store or at the Higher Side Clothing, if that's your jam. Big thanks to everyone who is a supporter in one way or another through the website, or through Patreon. Obviously, it means a lot, and I try not to take my position lightly. So let's keep making that sweet music play, and I'll see you next time. Your move, archetype, invokers, arconic influencers, and fools on the cosmic journey. Your fucking move. You know the plan has always been to hack your brain. MK Ultra's trying to drive you insane. They'll explode your heart if they think that's what it takes You think I'm answering the phone? Well, I ain't You gotta keep the curtains drawn Cause you don't want anyone thinking you're at home Well, you're not You should tape the mail slot And baby, if I seem withdrawn Let me say it's cause I just don't wanna go and get whacked Maybe you should know that the trauma affects you like it does everyone It's just the game plan, it's what the world's become They want a pat down and a swap Don't you see what's going on? Well now you know You're better keeping on your own Cause you can see the masters lie too much Oh baby, you can only trust yourself and if you think the system's out of touch, it is, and you can only trust yourself. I hope you know the elite aren't your friends. They'll suck out everything from you in the end. And if for some reason you think I might be wrong, I wonder where you got that opinion from. You gotta keep the curtains drawn Cause you don't want anyone thinking you're at home Well, you're not You should tape the mail slot 
And baby, if I seem withdrawn, let me say it's cause I just don't wanna go and get whacked. Maybe you should know that the trauma affects you like it does everyone. It's just the game plan, it's what the world's become. They want a pat down and a swap. Don't you see what's going on? Well, now you know. You're better keeping on your own, cause you can see the masters lie too much. Oh, baby, you can only trust yourself. And if you think the system's out of touch, it is, and you can only trust yourself. Out of touch, it is, and you can only trust yourself. 